What's up? How you guys doing tonight? Well, uh, where, am I? where are my dig peeps at? How you guys doing tonight? Awesome. Awesome. What's up, guys? How's it going? Good. We got some from Dig. we like to show everybody. So, All right. Bananas, unite! in the air today. Uh, I want to uh, I want to give you guys a little bit of uh, information real quick before we get started in what we're going to talk about tonight. And I think that what we're going to talk about tonight is perfectly relevant for uh, shh, what we're going to talk about this tonight is perfectly relevant for um, what I'm about to announce to you guys. And as I've been talking about, uh, uh, we do uh, mission trips every summer. And it is, and, and every year, and this is something we're super passionate about. We're about, we are passionate about taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world because we believe that that changes people's lives, that changes your perspective, that turns your life upside down. And so we're starting this series called When Helping Hurts because this is based off of a book that really drives the mission strategy of 12 Stone. And so over the next three weeks, you guys are going to be hearing some of that kind of stuff. Uh, but to just kind of introduce to you, um, this next year... We are going to be going on two out-of-the-country missions trips, the first of which is going to be over Gwinnett County Spring Break, Gwinnett County School Spring Break, and the second will be over the summer next year, and we're going to be taking two trips to Haiti. Yes. And, uh, and so the next couple of weeks you're going to hear us be announced this, we're going to have a, a uh, missions trip information meeting that is going to be going on on uh, November the 1st from at 8.30 right after the service. We're asking you to invite your, your parents to that if you're interested in going on one of the missions trips. And, uh, and they're, they're life-changing, and you'll kind of see this and hear this over the next three or four weeks. But just to give you a little snapshot of where we're going to be going, the people we're going to be working with, and the organization we're going to be working with, we've got a quick little video we want to show you, and then we'll get into the message for tonight.
So, so I said it's going to be unbelievable. You'll be hearing more about that over the next couple of weeks. And I would just ask you guys to, to plant this in your mind and just begin to pray about whether or not you would, God would uh, have you go on this trip. And I'll just say, there's a lot of times when people come to me and they say, you know what, like, I prayed about going on a missions trip and I really just don't feel like God is leading me to go on a missions trip. And my response to that is always, God has already called you to go. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We don't have to pray and get confirmation on things that God has already spoken about. You don't pray for peace before you go on your summer vacation with your family to the beach. And so I want to challenge you and encourage you that this may be one of the most unbelievable experiences of your life. And I'm just going to tell you, we took about 30 students to Nicaragua last year, and many of them are in the room right now. If you're in Nicaragua, raise your hand. Yeah, all underclassmen. And I'll tell you right now, it was life-changing, life-changing for many of them. And uh, so I just want to share that with you. I think it's important for you guys to go. Uh, so let's get into it tonight. Tonight we're going to be talking about fair and unfair. Fair and unfair. And as we begin to talk about when helping hurts and we begin talking about how we do ministry to others, I think that the first thing we need to do tonight and the first thing we need to do in this series is to right-size God. Now, not that that is my, my responsibility or our responsibility to try to define who God is or to right-size who God is or to kind of size him up, but I think that the problem with most people who are in American Christianity and most people in Christianity in general is that they have a very small view of God. That pretty much God doesn't care about their life and God doesn't care about intervening in their life and that God is not really in control and God is not in control of their life, but in fact that I am in control of my life. And it is because your view of God is small. And so there is a piece of where we're going today that is really going to hit that issue so that you can see the, the, the fact that God is all-powerful, God is sovereign, God is in control. There is no one above him, there is no one beside him. God is God. And he's unbelievable, he is amazing, and the only response we have is to bow down and worship. So what is fair? What is unfair? See, when I, when I look at people around me, um, there's a lot of times I look at them and I'm like, man, it, that, that's, just, that's just unfair, man. Like, that dude has a really nice car. And my car has 265,000 miles on it and is about to blow up and is leaking oil everywhere. You know what I'm saying? Or I look at someone, I'm like, man, that's unfair. Like, they got, man, look at their house. Their house is, is awesome. Or, 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 man, look at, look at man, they, man, they got to go to that college. Man, I really wanted to go to that college. Or, or, man, look at their family situation. Man, I just wish that, like, my family was like that. I did. It's just so unfair that they have that situation. Or, and we begin to walk down this road of what is unfair and what is fair. And this is what I found. What I found is, is that in my life and in most of our lives, that when we look at other people, our life, we tend to look at our life and we tend to lean to the side of saying, my life's a little unfair. I mean, we look at people and we say, man, that, I, and I'll just be honest, man, I, I'm a hater. You know what I'm saying? 
Like, oh, you know, people write, wear their shirts, don't hate. Listen, we all hate. We look at other people and we're like, dang, man, what a, I, want, I want that dude, you know? Why does that guy get it so easy? Everything just falls in his lap. Everything just happens right for him. But for me, everything's tough and everything is hard work and everything takes a little extra. And, and, and man, why do those opportunities always come up for her, but they never come up for me? Or why does he always get all these friendships and I'm stuck up here and I don't have those friendships and relationships? Man, it's just unfair. Can anybody relate to what I'm talking about? You guys know what I'm saying I mean y'all know people like that too where you look at and you're like dang it just looks like everything works out for them y'all know what I'm talking about and you're like oh I just want to I just want to be them and we look at our situations and we look at our lives and we say man that that situation is is fair we say this situation is unfair but where do we even get the idea to define what is fair or what is unfair see I think that one of the reasons why we have a problem judging what is fair and what is unfair in our lives is because we have a skewed perspective. See, based on your upbringing, based on your experiences, based on the things that you have, have been through in your life, based on the, the people who have poured into you and the people that you know and the people that are teaching you and all that kind of stuff, based on all of those things in your life, you see the world through certain lenses and you see situations through certain lenses. So there are certain situations you look at and you say, man, that situation is incredibly unfair when someone else is looking at your situation going, man, your situation is unfair. I wish I had your situation. And the person below them is looking at them going, man, I wish I had your situation. Your situation is unfair. It's not fair that you have that and I don't have this. And typically we look at material things, but this goes far beyond material things. This goes across the board in every area of our life. And I think it's because we have a skewed perspective because, because we see the world through our lenses. Let me give you an example. When I was in high school, uh, one of my best friends, her name's Ashley, from high school, she, uh, she, when she was 16 years old, she got a car, and she got a, a brand new car. And she was, and, and, you know, and she was like turning 16, we're all pumped, man, yes, she's going to come to school, she's going to have a brand new car, and, and so she comes riding up, and I'm talking brand new, straight off the parking lot, had like 10 miles on it when her mom and dad, uh, you know, dropped it off at the house for her to get in it and take it. And was, she comes pulling in the driveway at school, and she is bawling, crying. And we're like, dude, what the heck is this girl crying about, man? She's got this sick, nasty, brand new SUV. And she, and when she crying her eyes out, we're like, what? what is wrong with you? And all she kept saying over and over again is, it's so unfair. It's so unfair. I asked my mom and dad for a Pathfinder, and they got me this SUV. This isn't the SUV that I wanted. This is so unfair. I cannot believe that they would do this to me. My parents must hate me. Exactly. And I just begin to think in that moment, and as I reflect on that throughout the rest of my life, I think of that moment, I think of that situation, I'm like, is life really unfair for her? Is she really suffering? I mean, to own a new car puts her in the top 1%, top 1% of the world's wealth. In other words, she is richer than 99% of the people in the world, but because she didn't get the brand name of car that she wanted, she thinks for her, life is unfair. Listen, we all do it. It may not be that extreme, but let me tell you, for most of us, it's that childish. It's that childish. 
And then we have the audacity to go to God and say, God, why are you allowing this situation to happen in my life? God, why is this happening to me? This is so unfair. I can't believe you would do this to me. God, God, God. And we begin, because of our low, uh, our, our small perspective, we begin to blame God for the things going on in our life. Because our perspective is screwed up. And I think God would remind us, listen, you are finite and you don't understand everything, but I am infinite. I understand everything and I know everything and I have put you in situations and I've allowed things to happen in your life and I've allowed the experiences that have happened in your life to happen and I have even orchestrated some of those experiences to happen in your life so that you would see me and that my name would be glorified above all because at the end of the day, it is all about God. It is all about me. That's what he would say to us. And so as we head down this road, I just want to warn you up front that this conversation at times may get a little uncomfortable. But bear with us. Because I assure you that it is 100% biblical. This is truth. And I think for us sometimes it's easy for us to look at situations like a car or a house or a wardrobe or, man, it's just unfair that her hair is just so perfect. And look at those things. But when we take something and we take it a step further and we make the situation a little more intense, we make the situation a little more intense, we tend, we tend to come unglued. So I want you to follow along with me. I'm going to show you a video of a lady who lives in Africa. I'm going to show you part of the video now, and then at the end of the night, I'm going to show you the other part of the video. And we're going to work in the book of Job, and we're going to walk through Job's life, and we're going to, I'm going to show you guys how God is completely fair in all circumstances and in all situations. Check out this video. The people living in this part of Ethiopia haven't seen decent rain in years. The scorched earth, the starving cattle, the failing crops are all signs of their daily struggle for survival. For the most part, 
This community is untouched by the outside world. Life goes on as best it can in this remote, desolate place. Kids play, families live, work and struggle side by side. In Wakitu's struggle to provide for her family, she and her 11-year-old daughter, Taji, get up very early and head out into the countryside. They walk for hours to find dry wood they can sell. It's their only source of income. And as time goes on, there's less and less available. So they have to walk further and further. One day, there'll be none left. It's a tough job, physically demanding work in immense heat, especially considering that Wakitu is seven months pregnant. Wakito and Taji have to walk six kilometers into the local town to sell the wood they have collected, just to buy water and bread. Wakitu has very little, but she does have the support of those around her. And this is one of the beautiful things about her community. Walking around, we experienced a real sense of togetherness and concern for each other. There's something incredibly special about this, something that we have all but lost in the West. <laughs> Rakadetan 
bayi. Wah ini cakap mana ni muka mana badan je asgara galih. Wah ini cakap mana. Rakina gudar rai mana bayi. Amma wanya tali kabel. Rakina mana nafas. One of the very heartbreaking things that uh, I live with is uh, when I see people in rural areas being buried before they start living. In a way, this is really a true description of what it means to live in rural Ethiopia. Many of these intelligent people die before their potential is out. Gafin gafinga, agumabula, gafin gafin kamasuma argatani, udu garaku fichentain, kamasuma, kamasuma, garambo ambarate, akakuno karayuni, dura anangalavichaviti, amasin lemin ambarate muti. Here's the reality <clears throat> there are more people in the world that live like that than live like you do. It's a fact. When we look at this situation of Wakitu, she has HIV. Three of her four children have HIV. She's pregnant with the fifth. Her husband has left her. She has no means. She has to travel miles to gather sticks and then go and hope that someone buys them so she has water and food to eat for that day. Listen, people ask me all the time, well, Derek, what about that lady? What about that guy in that remote village in Africa that has never heard of Jesus? What about that person? What about that person who doesn't have the means? There she is, right there. That's her. That's her. We ask ourselves a question, is that unfair? How can a loving, just, good God allow that to happen? How? Unfair, no. Sad, yes. But unfair, no. See, what you fail to remember, and what we fail to remember, is that apart from God, we are completely sinful in rebellion to God. There is nothing good that we can do on our own. And there is nothing that can earn our favor between us and God. And the reality is, it is in God's great mercy and in God's great love and in God's great grace that he even allows us to take one more breath here on this earth. Because the reality is not a single one of us deserves it, not one of us. The Bible tells us all of sin and fall short of glory of God. Every single one of us, the Bible tells us, there is no one righteous, not even one. The reality is our condition apart from God lends every single man and every single woman, every single person sin to the judgment of God and it is only by God's great mercy love and grace that he allows Wakito to even have another breath in her lungs or even in your lungs you want to talk about God being unfair I'll tell you God being unfair the most unfair act of God is that God chose to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin and my sin, even though he was innocent and not deserving. That's unfair. 
What's unfair is the cross on God's, beh- on God's part. What's unfair is that God would choose to come and rescue people who most of the time don't think about him, consider him, and completely reject him for most of their lives. The miracle is that God would even save one person. So then we get to Job. In Job chapter 1. Let's read it. In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright, and he feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Listen to this. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes and on their birthdays, and they would invite, uh, they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the period of uh, feasting had run its course... Job would make the arrangements for them to be purified, and early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day an angel came, uh, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Who brought up Job's name? The Lord, God. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put all your servants to the sword, and I am the only one left to escape to tell you about it. While he was still speaking, uh, at the same time, another messenger came up and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up all the sheep of the servants, and I am the only one who has, has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put your servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at your older brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Job. What do we know about Job? Well, there's a few observations from the story I want to point out. First, Job was a righteous man. He was the greatest man on earth. In fact, God even brings him up the conversation and says he's blameless. This is a man who loves God. He was so concerned about living his life for God. He was so concerned about that that he would even have a time of purifying, a time when they would go and, and, and give, you know, confess to God and do those kind of things, even after they would have a party, just in case they accidentally sinned against God. This is how devoted he was to God. He was a righteous man. He loved God. 
So he was not being punished for being evil. He was not being punished for being evil. He was living the way God wanted him to live and experience some terrible trials here. See, I think this is an important thing for you to realize. For many of us in this room, we think that as long as everything is going good for us in our life, that means that we must be doing right with God. And when things are going bad with us in life, we think that that means we're not doing right with God. And for many of us, we come and we say, hey, God, I want to give my life to you. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to put my trust and faith in you. I want to be in the family of God. And you come in and then you, you get baptized to celebrate that in front of everybody else. And then trials come in your life and you have falsely believed that if I give my life to Jesus, that means that nothing bad is going to happen to me. Everything's going to work out. Everything's going to go great. So therefore, life's going to be perfect, amazing, stable, and no problems. And then problems come and you say, God, you can't be true. I reject you. Because you bought into a lie about who God was and the life that you believe God promised for you. Listen, there's a lot of pastors out there that are preaching a prosperity gospel on if you give your life to Jesus and you pray every day and you call in and you buy some anointing oil, God's going to bless you and he's going to pour out his riches on you and you're going to be wealthy and health is going to come your way and you're going to be healed from your struggles. Well, listen, maybe, he didn't, maybe those guys didn't read the New Testament when the closest followers of Jesus, his disciples, every single one of them except for one was executed for their faith in Jesus. Did you think that those guys thought Jesus was going to rescue them that God was going to step in and intervene of course I'm sure they did but Jesus told them before they left there will be suffering you guys will be persecuted I'm going to warn you now see I didn't give my life to Jesus so that my life would be perfect and easy and that nothing bad would ever happen I gave my life to easy because to Jesus because I am desperately lost, desperately separated from God and headed to hell apart from a relationship with him. And apart from his power living in me, I am desperate in my life. Completely, utterly, and spiritually desperate. In the American culture, we look at material need and all we see is is material poverty. And what When It Helping Hurts talks about is there are four different types of poverty, one of which is spiritual poverty. And spiritual poverty is the greatest need that any man or any woman could ever, ever meet for their life. We all have spiritual poverty. And you see these trials that Job goes through. And Job goes through massive trials. His entire family, all ten of his sons were killed. His, his, his flocks and his herds and everything that he owned, all of his possessions, all of his riches, all of his wealth, everything completely destroyed and taken from him. If you keep on reading, the Bible tells us that then Satan inflicted him with boils on his skin. And they were so bad on his skin that he would take broken pottery and, and with the sharp pieces scratch the boils and the wounds on his body to relieve himself. He was so disfigured from the boils that when you keep reading through Job, his three friends come to visit him. They cannot even recognize him and they begin weeping because they were so bad on his body. The Bible says that they were from the tops of his feet to the the crown of his head suffering great suffering intense trial is it unfair his wife thought so in Job 2 9 she says curse God and die 
when we're going through suffering, when we are going through trials, when we are going through difficult situations in our life, is that not what people around us say? Curse God. You curse God. How can God be for you if that's happening to you in your life? It's because your perspective is small. Job had major trials. The second observation is God's fairness has nothing to do with our circumstances. God's fairness has nothing to do with our circumstances. Whether God is fair or not has nothing to do on whether what kind of car I drive or what kind of house I have or what kind of circumstance I'm in. See, that's what happens is we look at God and we say, God, that's not really fair because I want a Maserati and that guy has a Maserati and I want a Maserati and that's just unfair. Or this situation happened to this person and, and I want that in my life. Or this situation, bad situation happened in my life and it didn't happen in their life. Why didn't it happen in their life? They're, they're much worse than I am. They're much more evil than I am. That guy's not even a Christian. He cursed Curses you to his face and bad things don't happen to him. Our circumstances do not determine God's fairness. Third, God is sovereign and in control. That means that God is all-powerful. God is the one who is running things. Nothing happens outside of the power of God and the hand of God. And this is a part of right-sizing God. For many of us, we think we can define how God should respond to us and act to us in certain situations. And God is saying, hold on a second. I am God, not you. God is all-powerful. God is the one who holds the keys. God is the one who is, is there. And we see this in, this, in, in Job. We see in Job, Job throughout this entire book, he keeps saying, why me? Why is this happening to me? I've done nothing wrong. I've, I've followed you. I've done this. And he's complaining and he's, why me? Why me? Why me? And, and almost throughout the entire book, for 38 chapters, God is completely silent. And then in chapter 38, God has had enough. And this is what God says. And you can read through chapter 38 through 42. I'm not going to read it all, but I just want, to, I want you just to hear what God says. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this who is questioning my plans with words without knowledge? You don't have the right perspective. You don't know. Brace yourself like a man, for I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you, you understand. Who marks off the dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were the footings set or what was its cornerstone? You keep reading through and over and over again for four chapters, he's like, let me remind you who laid the foundations of this earth. Who are you questioning me? See, I think what happens is many times we look at God and we question God as if we have the right and the authority to question God with our little finite perspective and we forget that God has the infinite perspective. God knows all, God knows past, present, and future, and God knows how your situation is going to turn out and God knows better for you. And the Bible even tells us in Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together, no matter your circumstance or situation, for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so even in verse 12, look what he says. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Listen, I tell, I tell when morning happens. 
I tell the sun when to go down. Who are you to say, why me? Then I want you to notice Job's response in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, notice this. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this who, who, is this who questions my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak and I will question you and you shall answer. My ears have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He basically says, I am sorry for questioning you. Job needed to right-size God. Job needed to put in perspective who was in control. And we sometimes need to put in perspective who is in control. Because for many times, we look at situations and circumstances, and we say, why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? And listen, I know that some of those situations are terribly, terribly difficult situations. Job's was. Ten of his children dead. His own body inflicted. All of his possessions gone. And the interesting thing about it is, when you go back to Job chapter 1, God did not, Satan could not do anything to Job that God did not allow. Satan could not do anything to Job that God did not allow. God set parameters and boundaries, and he says, okay, do as you will, but here are the boundaries on how you can mess with him. Here are the boundaries on what you can do to Job. You've got to be careful when you start talking like this, because when you start opening people's eyes to the reality that God is in control, and even in difficult situations and unbelievable situations that even seem like unfair situations, we look at that and we go, man, like God, like how, is, how can God allow that to happen? How can God allow this to happen? And, and, and again, it's, it's our perspective thing. But here's the other thing we got to understand from Scripture is that God cares for us in suffering. God cares for us in suffering. See, in Isaiah, he says that, it says that he cried out as a woman in labor for his children. He saw his children hurting, and God was upset about that. The Bible says that when they were inflicted, he was afflicted. He felt the pain of his people. God cares. And listen, God understands suffering. God understands trial. And we know this because of Jesus. We know this because of Jesus. See, God humbles himself. He comes down to the earth in the form of a man as Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. Jesus knew what it was meant to experience loss, for he lost his, one of his best friends in Lazarus. That's where we get the shortest verse in the Bible that Jesus wept. Jesus knew what it meant to be betrayed, for he was betrayed by Judas, who, you can say what you want to about Judas, but Judas lived with Jesus for three years. There's no question about it that they were close. He knew what it meant to experience uh, rejection 
for the entire nation of Israel rejected him and the people that he came to save completely rejected him and he was murdered as an innocent man. He knew what it meant to suffer for he went to the cross and he experienced the most excruciating form of punishment that has ever been devised and he died for you and for me. John Stott says this, suffering is something that is particularly associated with humanity, but the scars in the hands and feet of Jesus show us that God too knows what it means to suffer. Suffering is something that is particularly associated with humanity. But the scars in the hands and feet of Jesus show us that God, too, knows what it means to suffer. God understands what you're dealing with. God cares about your pain, and he cares about your suffering. And God cares about you. And Paul even tells us later in Romans, and Paul knew suffering. He was tortured many times over, and he lists those in 1 Corinthians. But Paul tells us in Romans, he says that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces is hope and hope does not disappoint us until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord suffering produces perseverance that he saw there was an end to to, there was a there was a means to what was happening in his life there was an end to what was happening to his life he could see that those things that cause suffering in his life led to something that was greater and we even see this in Jesus when the Bible says that Jesus looked on his people with compassion for they were as sheep without a shepherd The Latin word, which we get the word compassion from, which this Greek word is translated into, literally comes from the word come and pati, which means to suffer together. Literally, Jesus looks at his people and he sees them in spiritual poverty as sheep without a shepherd, and he looks at them and he says to them, I suffer together with you. I care for you. I love you. And I will pursue you even to my death, even death on a cross. Man. Is God unfair? Hardly. Hardly. Let's finish this story of Wakitu. Hard as it is for us to understand, these people have no choice but to cut down the trees to sell for charcoal. They know that this is destroying the environment and their hopes for crops in the future. But with nothing for today, how can they plan for tomorrow? It's a matter of life and death.
ወዝራቴ ኢየሱስ ክርስቶስ ነገመቺ ነገመደ በቃ ይፈልሰፍ ወርደው ሆማ ነጀላን በኛው ፈያረ ቤተኒ ገራሳ ገራው አቀይቁ ፋራዳ ቤተን ነፈይስ there is deep determination at the government level at the church level and also in the hearts of God was in front of you right now what would you do She says I would ask for good health and then I would fall down at his feet thanking him for what For what What does she have to be thankful for she has nothing what does she have to be thankful for how can she say in that condition that she would fall down on her knees thanking jesus because she gets it like you and i don't see god put her in a place of great need so that when he met that need in her her life her greatest need her need for a savior that she would respond to him in such a way that you and I will never understand the end of job chapter 1 <clears throat> All this has just been laid out before Job and I want you to notice Job's response. At this Job got up. He tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell down to the ground and worship and said, "Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away." may the name of the lord be praised in all this job did not sin by charging god with wrongdoing what was his response his response was the same as wakito he fell to the ground and he worshiped god fair or unfair god is fair And here's the reality. We live in a world of suffering. We live in a world of suffering because there is sin in this world. If Adam and Eve had not sinned in the garden and we didn't live after the fall, there would be no suffering, there would be no death, there would be no disease, there would be none of that. But because they sinned, sin entered the world and the Bible tells us that all of sin, that's you, that's me, that's all of us. And so we live in a fallen world that is tainted by sin in which this stuff happens and it is extremely sad. But how dare us blame God? See, we're so quick 
to blame God when bad things happen in our life. And we are so slow to praise him when things are going well. And that is the answer to the question of, if there's this loving, good, great God, then why does evil and bad stuff happen and exist? And it's a self-refuting question. It's an illogical question because to admit that there is evil and bad stuff in this world, then you have to know a standard of good in order to merit, measure that standard of evil by. If you don't know good, you can't know what evil is. And if there's a standard of good and there's a standard of evil, then there must be a moral law that takes place. And if there's a moral law that governs this world, then there must be a moral law giver, and that is God. There must be a God. And if evil is the evidence against God, then is good not evidence for God? It's a self-refuting question. So here's my challenge for you. My challenge for you is this, to have a big view of God. To understand that God's in control and he's in control of every situation. And you may be going through the situation that you're in right now. God may have put you in that situation because he wants to show you something that you will never understand if you were not in that situation. Just as Wakitu understood her need for God and what that does for her life, you can never understand that unless you went through that circumstance or that situation in your life. And it only leaves us with one response, to fall down on our knees in worship. So this is how we're going to close out tonight before announcements and all that stuff at the end. Is that we're going to come and we're going to worship God for who he is. We are going to respond as Wakitu and as Job did and praise his name for he is good. And if you're here tonight and you are going through some difficult times, maybe a difficult season, or you've been through a difficult season and that has paralyzed you, I want to challenge you tonight to lay that down at the feet of Jesus. Know that God loves you. Know that God cares about you. And not only does he love you and he cares about you, but he is moved with compassion on you. He feels your pain and he is suffering with you and he cares deeply and will heal you in that circumstance, that situation. But if you have to continue on in that situation, know that God has a plan for that. Father, tonight I just pray that you would be pleased by our worship. I pray, God, that you would be you would be glorified and lifted high in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.